Well, today our gentle little story of Ruth comes to an end. Uh, This part of the story ends with a marriage, a new baby and happily ever after in the little rural village of Bethlehem. But it's a chapter that helps us to see a much bigger story. Uh, It points us back hundreds of years to the first fathers, to Jacob, and, and to a sordid little story about his son Judah and another foreign woman called Tamar. But not only back, it helps us look forward to the sequel past this mess of the judges to the mountaintop of Israel's story, to King David. But for those of us who are Christian, the story pushes us even further ahead. Uh, 1,100 years beyond David, beyond a throne room to a manger in a stable. A stable that, coincidentally, is also in Bethlehem. And beyond David, the king of Israel, to Jesus, the king of kings, to God become man. And all of that's just in Ruth chapter 4, packed into 22 verses. The whole of Israel's story, all there like a little zip file in Ruth chapter 4. So let's get into it. Remember where we've been. Ruth and Naomi have arrived back in Bethlehem from Moab. They're widows, no family, no support. Uh, But they arrive back just when the drought breaks, the famine breaks, just in time for the barley harvest. Ruth decides to glean, to collect the leftover grain. She just so happens to end up in Boaz's field, a relative who's a kinsman redeemer. That is, a relative whose responsibility is to fix things for family, to buy land, to repay debts, to avenge, even to marry widows to produce heirs. Ruth suggests Boaz marry her, As kinsman redeemer, Boaz thinks it's a great idea. The fly in the ointment, though, is there's a male relative who's closer. It's his responsibility. He gets first option. Ruth promises, uh, Boaz promises Ruth he'll sort it out. And so chapter 4 begins there. So verse 1, Boaz goes to the farm gate, uh, to the town gate, where the business happens. He waits for this relative to come along, this one with first responsibility. He arrives, Boaz invites him to sit down. Now, remember how names have been important to this point. And yet we come to this guy and he's Mr Anonymous. Listen to how the author tells the story. When the kinsman redeemer he'd mentioned came along, Boaz said to him, come over here, so-and-so, and and sit down. That's actually a better way of translating the Hebrew. Uh, We've got, uh, come over here, my friend, which is not really what it says, but it's this phrase that's sort of like so-and-so. Now, I don't think that's what Boaz actually said. I think the narrator has chosen to record his invitation in that way to, to make the point that this man's name is not worth remembering. His name is Mr No Name, so-and-so, buddy, mate. Uh, he's given the opportunity to play part, his part in the story and he says, oh, I don't want to be involved. I don't. Uh, and so he loses the chance to make a name to leave a legacy. And so he remains anonymous for the storyteller. Boaz gets ten village elders as witnesses, verse 2, and he tells them his shrewd plan. But it's not quite what we're expecting. We're expecting an offer about young Ruth and marriage, but instead we get something about old Naomi and a block of land. Do you see that in verse 3? Naomi, who's come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here. 
If you will redeem it, do so. If you will not, tell me so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I'm next in line. Now, the deal involves a piece of land, uh, land we'd never heard about before, but somehow Boaz knows and offers it for sale. It was one of the jobs of kinsmen redeemers. Uh, Destitute relatives could sell the land, but they were to sell it to family if they could, so that when children came along, family would give it back uh, and it would stay in the family. Now, for our Mr No Name, his eyes light up at the smell of, at the sniff of of a bargain. As long as he knows it's only about Naomi, it's a great deal because he takes a look at Naomi and says, it's not like she's going to have kids. Uh, This land will be mine for good. It's a great business deal. There's no downside. Sure, he says, I'll do it. Well, now Boaz fills him in on the rest of the story. Ah, well, there's more to the redeeming than simply getting a good real estate deal. Redemption is costly. Naomi hasn't got any kids, but Ruth is still around. You'll have to marry her so that her kids can inherit. That's part of your responsibility too. He gives him the full picture. You buy the field, you marry Ruth, you support her and Naomi and provide her with children and support the children and then give the field back when they inherit. Whoa, hang on a minute, said Mr No-Name. I don't, no one said anything about all of that mess. I thought it was just a straight real estate deal. Oh, yeah, I forgot to mention that, didn't I, said Boaz. So in verse 6, Mr No-Name counts the cost and walks away. He misses out on making a name for himself. He wants to preserve his family line, but ends up missing out on building a legacy. I can't redeem it. It'll cost too much. You do it. So verse 9 and 10, Boaz announces that he will. That's what we'd all hope for, uh, us romantics, you know, we, we want to see the, the thing go ahead and all the obstacles move. Uh, they shake hands on the deal, or what the equivalent at least is, one guy gives him a sandal. It's funny, isn't it? We think that's weird, but for the readers of the time, they thought it must have thought it was weird as well, because the writer actually has to tell them, here's what happened at that time. So we don't feel quite so bad if it seems strange to us. But I just want to stop for a moment and compare Boaz and Mr No Name and see what lessons we can learn about redemption. First thing we learn is that redemption is costly. Redemption is costly. Mr No Name didn't want to jeopardise his family fortune, so he said no. And that's the reality, isn't it? When we help people, it costs. It might be a financial cost. It may be an emotional cost. It may just cost you your time. But generally, if you give some sort of valuable and useful help, it'll cost you something. Uh, So don't be surprised, don't be resentful when the help that you give costs. That's the nature of it. Uh, The second lesson we learn is that the best sort of help, the best sort of redemption, is freely given. It's free, uh, with no obligation. Uh, Mr No Name was happy when he thought he would get something out of the deal, But once he realised it would cost, he wasn't interested. And so we've got Mr No Name as contrasted with Boaz. His selfishness, his self-centredness compared to Boaz's generosity. And I think we're a little, for most of us, we're looking in the mirror when we look at Mr No Name. Most of us, I think, 
our tendency is to do this. The opportunity comes along to help someone and we weigh it up. What's it going to cost me? Uh, am I crossing my boundaries? You know, I'm setting boundaries in place for you know, self-help. I've got to look after myself. I, I don't want to give too much. Uh, we calculate the cost instead of imagining the benefits and the rewards. We put self-interest before the interest of others. And yet here we see the best sort of redemption, the best sort of help, is costly, but it's also free. It's given freely simply because of a family relationship with no expectation of return, no expectation of payback, no keeping score, free and costly. It's the redemption God offers us in Jesus. It's the redemption Boaz offers, free and costly. He's willing, he's eager to bear the cost, even though it's not his. It's not his responsibility. It's someone else's turn, but he steps in anyway. Uh, he's eager to make a name for himself, uh, the name that Mr No Name misses out on. And the crowd sees that. Uh, they join in to bless Boaz. Uh, perhaps they do it as Mr No Name skulk, skulks off into the shadows, kicking the dust with his one sandal as he goes. Uh, and so the, the crowd turn their attention to Boaz and, and they pray that God will bless him. Uh, make his name even more well known than it already is and that they bless Ruth. Look there at verse 11. May the Lord make the woman who's coming into your home like Rachel and Leah who together built up the house of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman may your family be like that of Perez whom Tamar bore to Judah. That's their prayer that God would lift up the name of Boaz and make it famous. And it's the opposite of what happens to Mr No-Name. And just like the other prayers in the book of Ruth, we, we want to focus in on them. They're important because we recognise in them uh, that God is doing the things that they're actually praying, that God is giving Boaz a name and that he will make uh, Ruth uh, uh, the start of a generation. And it's this prayer that is like the, the little key that unlocks the big story as well. Uh, let me explain what I mean. The, the crowd mentioned Rachel and Leah. They're Jacob's two wives and between them and a couple of servant girls they managed to produce 12 sons for Jacob. And uh, that was sort of how God was... Uh, fulfilling his promises to Abraham. It was the, the great nation he was going to make of Abraham. And so the people are praying that Ruth would be as fertile as that. May she be as fertile as Rachel and Leah. May she produce generations. It's a big prayer. Uh, but the blessing gets even more interesting. They go on to pray for Boaz that his children will be like those of Perez. Well, maybe we don't know Perez quite so well. Uh, Perez was the son Tamar bore to Judah. Well, we know the name Judah. Judah's important because he's one of the 12 tribes, one of Leah's sons, and the people of Bethlehem, don't forget, are from the tribe of Judah. So they're talking about their ancestor, Boaz's ancestor. And so they're praying that Boaz's name would be famous like that of Perez. But apart from that, Perez is not that famous. 
But there is one little story where we find out what's going on about Perez and Tamar. It's in Genesis 38. If you want to, you can flick over there. It's uh, back about 40 or 50 pages, Genesis chapter 38. It's another story about uh, foreign women who are widowed and who need a kinsman redeemer. That's really about the only points of connection. Very different stories. But I think that's why the crowd mentions it, because it's another example of a kinsman redeemer. Boaz does the right thing gladly, and yet Genesis 38 tells us the story about Judah, who does the right thing reluctantly, unwittingly. Genesis 38. Uh, Judah leaves home. He marries a Canaanite girl. He has three sons. He finds a wife called Tamar for his eldest son. But in verse 7, the son was evil, so God put the first son to death. We don't know why. So Judah tells his second son, Onan, to lie with Tamar, to, to play the part of the kinsman redeemer, to provide her with a child. But we read that Onan was selfish. He didn't want to split his inheritance with another child. So verse 9, he sleeps with Tamar but won't allow her to become pregnant. He could have said no, let someone else do it, but he puts his own uh, pleasure above Tamar's uh, requirement and uh, he, above his responsibilities. And so verse 10, we learn that God puts him to death as well. It's a lovely story, isn't it? Uh, he puts his own desires above responsibilities. And then we find out, verse 11, that Judah does exactly the same thing. Uh, he puts his own desires above his responsibilities. Verse 11, he decides Tamar must be jinxed. Uh, she's gone through two of his sons. He doesn't want to risk a third, his last son. His own agenda more important than family obligation. So he sends her home, back to her father's house. Uh, live as a widow in your father's house until my son Shalah grows up, for he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. So you can see from that little last part of that verse, he's got no intention of giving her to Tamar, giving him to Tamar. So after a while, Tamar realises that uh, Judah's not going to uh, give his third son to her, so it's time for a shrewd plot of her own. If she can't get these men to do the right thing knowingly, she'll do it so they, uh, she'll organise things so they do it unwittingly. Verse 14, she dresses up in disguise. She waits by the road where she knows Judah will come. He goes by, thinks she's a prostitute and wants to sleep with her. He offers his personal seal, his staff as security until he can pay. Uh, She becomes pregnant, which is what she's wanted all along children from a family member to preserve the family line. Uh, Judah goes back to try and pay the debt. The woman's nowhere to be seen. Verse 24, news of her pregnancy sneaks out. She's not married. Uh, She must be guilty of adultery. Judah is filled with a kind of righteous anger only a hypocrite can generate. Bring her out and have her put to death, he says. But this is all part of Tamar's shrewd plot. As she's dragged out, she sends the seal and the staff off to Judah with this message. The man who owns these is the one responsible. See if you recognise them, is her message to Judah. Well, of course, Judah does. They're his. And by the time Tamar arrives, he realises 
He's treated her badly. Verse 26. Judah recognised them and said, She's more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son Shelah. She'd waited for Judah to do the right thing, but he won't. And so she organises it herself. It's a shrewd plan, uh, just as Boaz's was shrewd. But it does make us wonder, though, doesn't it, that Tamar is more righteous than Judah. There are a few things that we think, whoa, that doesn't sound too good. Uh, but then again, to be more righteous than Judah, it's not a terribly high bar to clear, is it? Like He's acted terribly. If, if Tamar hadn't done what she did, Judah may have had no other descendants. We don't know of any other children he had. The family line may have stopped there. Remember, two of the three sons had already died. Boaz and Tamar, they act shrewdly, they're blessed by God, children are produced, God's promises are kept. Perez is born. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, now to Perez. And here here in Ruth chapter 4, we find how the family line continues from Perez all the way down to a guy called Boaz, seven generations on. And there we see God's amazing plans, the coincidences of providence. Back in Judah's time, there was a little bump in the generational line, a hiccup, a Canaanite woman came in, Tamar. And then seven generations later, we get another little bump, another Gentile, a Moabite woman called Ruth, another woman who needs the help of a kinsman redeemer. But this time, Boaz, instead of being forced unwittingly and reluctantly, he gives help gladly. And we're reminded of this whole uh, historical story because of that little blessing from the, from the crowd to Boaz in Ruth chapter 4. Uh, it unlocks for us the big picture about how God's been at work. But back to our story, Ruth chapter 4, we're coming towards the pointy end of the story he doesn't waste any more time. Uh, for Boaz, there's a wedding and a birth. There's a match and then a hatch. And uh, as always, God's behind it all. Verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife. Then he went to her. And notice this detail. And the Lord enabled her to conceive. And she gave birth to a son. Don't forget, Ruth had been married for at least 10 years previously with no children. But now... As in everything else, God is at work. Uh, She conceives, she has a baby. But then perhaps unexpectedly, the focus moves to Naomi. We expect the camera to zoom out. It's, you know, Boaz and Ruth, happily ever after. But it ends up being Naomi, happily ever after. She's the one whose hometown it is. She's the one the women welcome back from Moab at the end of chapter 1. She's the one who went away full and came back empty. It's her family God's been at work in. And that's what the women say in another prayer in verse 14. Uh, The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. They recognise Boaz as pretty special as well. May he become famous throughout Israel. He'll renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. And then verse 16, Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap and cared for him. It's a great finish, isn't it? She's, she's proud, she's overjoyed. The woman who'd arrived back empty is now full. 
The one who'd been bitter now has joy and peace. She's actually beginning to resemble her name that means pleasant. And verse 17, just to emphasise all these changes, the women say in verse 17, Naomi has a son. (laughs) Not not Ruth, Naomi has a son. I wonder if there's not a little uh, glance back to chapter 1. What had seemed impossible is actually possible with God. Back in chapter 1, Naomi had said to her her daughter-in-laws, it's impossible that I can provide you with sons who will grow up and marry you so you can have children. It's impossible. And God seems to have a sense of humour. He gives her a son. And then we see why the son's important. He becomes uh, the grandfather of King David. So, what's the story about? Who is it about? It's called the Book of Ruth. Well, is Ruth really the centre of the story? Maybe we could argue it should be called the book of Naomi or maybe the book of Boaz or maybe the subtitle is something like stories from the background of King David. Maybe it's about King David. Well, I want to suggest it's not any of those options really. It's a, the book of Ruth, like the rest of the Bible, is a story about God. It's the story of his story. Now, it's a history book, but it's not a complete history. It's not like Chronicles or Kings or Samuel. Uh, It's one small event. Uh, But if we look carefully within this one small story, we, we still see the big story, don't we? We see how God works through the actions of people, how his providence works out. And I think that makes Ruth even more relevant and personal for us because God's subtle hand in small events is nearly always the way it works for us. We live our life in a series of small events just like this one with dozens of decisions to be gentle, to be generous, to trust God or not and God is at work in all those small bits weaving them together to make a big rug. Ruth helps us to take that step back, to see the perspective behind those small events, to see that God is at work putting those days and those events together to make a history. His purposes were worked out when Tamar tricked Judah, because out of Tamar came Perez and the ancestors of Boaz. God's purposes were being worked out when Boaz generously and without uh, need redeemed Ruth, because out of Ruth came King David. And God was still at work over the next thousand years from David on as his thin line of descendants endured war and rebellion and exile and foreign conquerors and wickedness and sickness. It was a thin line that eventually came all the way back to Bethlehem because from King David descended a young woman, who miraculously gave birth to another king. Uh, Right back there in Bethlehem, perhaps not too far from those city gates, another king, the one God had chosen to be the centre of history. And all the events of the history find their purpose and fulfilment there, in that manger with Jesus. Because in Jesus, our ultimate kinsman redeemer, God controls the real problem for humanity, 
he deals with, not famine or drought or childlessness or death, but sin, our rebellion from God. Jesus redeems us with his perfect obedience, freeing us from sin and death slavery, restoring us to God. That's the big story. That's been the plan through the whole of history, from Adam all the way through to today, to restore us to the one who made us. That's the big story. But, but Ruth has told that story in a small scale, in bite-sized chunks. And I think that's just as well for us because we live our life in bite-sized chunks. As we live our life, we have the opportunity to see God at work in our small decisions. But as we step back, as we look back, we can recognise the big panorama and see his hand over the long haul. The same God who provides bread for your table today is the one who provided Jesus the bread of life so that you could have life in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Boaz. We thank you for his faithfulness, his generosity, his willingness to share and help. Might we be people like that in our dealings with each other? We pray too as we look at Boaz that we might look beyond him to appreciate, enjoy, worship, love Jesus, his descendant, the one who redeemed us from the greatest problem, our sin and our rebellion from you. We pray that we might do all these things as we honour and live for him. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.